Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. If you've got a Bible, could you go to Mark chapter 1? No, actually, that started late, so we're just trying to move it forward. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. If you've not met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here. We're getting into our sermon series on the book of Mark. We started it last week. Um, if you missed that, you can catch up online. Um, that would be great. We, um, at our house, we've got a couple of um, children, and we've gone back to school over the last um, couple of weeks. And our youngest is in year six, um, which is the final year of primary school. And what he's got coming up very soon is his year six residential where they take them away. And this is a big deal because the last couple of years, obviously, they haven't been able to do that because of COVID, uh, et cetera, and the like. And so he hasn't had, uh, so he's now getting an opportunity to do it. And one of the things we're finding is they, the schools send this list home, a kit list of the things they need to take away because they're going away for multiple nights. And you're like, oh, crumbs. So you're reading this list, and one of the things is they need to take a wet bag for all their wet clothes, because they can do all these activities outside in the water, and they're going on the water, they're doing all sorts of bungee thing, things like that. And so we know that the bag of wet clothes is coming home with our name on it at some point, which is great. They've also got to take a wash kit, which we know is going to come home unopened, probably would be an accurate word. We know they've got to take money, because there's a tuck shop on site and there's some things you can play games like foosball so they need to take some 20p's we know none of that's coming home because they'll it'll buy the sweets and and do that sort of thing and so there's a lot of prep that we kind of got to get ready for him to go away this week it's like okay we're, we're going and this afternoon is like is packing time where we're going to do that but that's not the only preparation we've been doing we've been doing preparation his entire life getting him ready for things like this all through his life, we've been training him how to wash himself, how to look after himself, how to tie his own shoelaces, how to dress himself, how to wipe his own butt, all that kind of stuff. You know, parent stuff. So our preparation isn't just immediate, it's been long term. And what we're going to be looking at today in Mark, we're going to find the preparation for the coming of Jesus was long term, but there was also an immediacy to it. So it happened over a period of time, but there was also some incidents we'll find in our text that happen right now, all preparing Jesus for what comes next in the story. So we've had began Mark. Last week we looked at verse 1 and we saw the title of the gospel, um, which was uh, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's where we started. And if you were going to give Mark a title, that would be it. We found out that it was all about Jesus, that the coming of Jesus was the best news ever. He was the long-awaited king, and he was God who came to earth. And so that's what we found out. We only looked at one verse. We're going to look at a lot longer section today. Last week, I mentioned a couple of resources, because we're going to be looking at Mark for the next 12 months or so as we work our way through all 16 chapters of this gospel. And I gave you some, uh, some journals which you want to try. There's a couple of other resources I want to mention which should have come last week, but they didn't come, so I'm 
getting them now because they've arrived. If you want to study Mark a bit further, the first one is this series um, called the Straight to the Heart series by a guy called Fillmore, and this is really good at getting into a book. It's nice bite-sized chapters that are only a few pages each that you can use to work through Mark's gospel. So if you want to go a bit deeper, we've obviously got the sermons, but if you want to spend some of your own time, you want a guide to help you, a guide who knows what he's talking about, this guy Fillmore is a smart, able guy. He writes really well, and he can... Uh, lead you through Mark's gospel. Um, so if you want to grab one of them, I'll put the link uh, on the email so you can order a copy. But I also have three copies here today. So if you want a copy, come and grab it. Uh, there's one there for you. The other one uh, the other one I want to mention is this one. I think these are fantastic if you're a certain way inclined, which I am. Um, also, if you've got older children, these are outstanding. This is called the Word for Word Bible comic uh, on the gospel of Mark. And this is brilliant because it's basically the Bible illustrated. I mean just the Bible, not paraphrased, the Bible. And this is the NIV uh, text, 1984 text. Um, and it's basically uh, historically researched and illustrated. So as you're reading about it, you are seeing what he's talking about. And it's all accurate up to, as far as we can understand, from archaeology and history. So it's basically a graphic novel with the Bible. And it's fascinating to read, and it's got authentic garb and all those kind of things. And so as you're looking through it, and you get to Jerusalem, you see the temple where Jesus would have been talking about. You see what it looked like in the Sanhedrin. So it's fantastic. So I've got a copy of that to give away. If you want that, if you've got older kids, that's a great one um, to give to them, because they can look at it as well as read it. And they're actually reading the Bible, even though they're reading a comic book. So they don't know. So it's stealth as well. So it's brilliant for that kind of stuff as well. So enjoy that. I'll put the links out if you want to grab a copy of that. All right, we've got to read the passage. You found Mark 1? We're going to read it together, starting at verse 2. There's a few slides, so we're going to work our way through it. So it's good to give ourselves the public reading of Scripture. So this is what we're going to do now. So let's read Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 2, and we will end at verse 13. Everyone, eyes on the screen. Three, two, one, go.
Okay, fantastic. Big idea this morning. Like Jesus, we too are to be men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus, we too are to be men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, two things I'm going to look at today. Jesus' preparation, sorry, the preparation for Jesus and the preparation of Jesus. So, first thing, the preparation for Jesus. First few verses there, 2 to 8. Now, when Jesus arrived on the scene, Mark set it up in verse 1. This is the beginning of the good news. He did not just walk into a vacuum. He walked into a historical context. And that historical, that historical context had been prepared by God for his coming. And the first thing we see is the Old Testament there, verses uh, 2 and 3. It references the prophet Isaiah. Now, actually, what you find there, there are two quotations. It's not just Isaiah. It's Isaiah and Malachi. But the way they did it back then was when they quote, uh, quoted the Old Testament, they only referenced the greater of the prophets. And Isaiah being the greatest always gets reference. There's a reference from Isaiah and there's a reference from Malachi. And it begins, it is written. And this gives it full force of what he's doing. This is the word of God being spoken. So what the Jews would have known at the time, that was their Old Testament, the word of God, the very words of God spoken to them. So it says, it is written. And he wrote, quotes, behold, I'll send my messenger before you. And this is a quote from Malachi 3.1, if you want to look it up, where it says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there is, there is um, something written from the Old Testament that someone is coming, a messenger. And then Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so what Mark is doing, he is saying this beginning of this good news of Jesus goes way back goes way back. It's not just starting now. There is a history to it. Jesus isn't a plan B. Oh, God thought, man, I need to do something about my people. They are really are messing stuff up. This is something that has been prepared along the way. It is hundreds, thousands of years in its process, in its development. And the New Testament in our Bible connects directly with the Old Testament. They're not uh, two different books or two different things and actually that, have, that bear no relation to each other. Some people say that, oh yeah, I like the New Testament, not really an Old Testament sort of person. And you're like, duh, they're the same story that is continuing for it. And what we have is a path, a way being prepared there. We talked about last week that one of the themes that runs through Mark's gospel is the idea of a journey, traveling. It begins here, right in verse 2, is saying there's a way is being prepared, a path is being prepared, this way of, of God coming to his people, a way of salvation being made for that. And then we move on and we immediately come to John. And the fact that John suddenly appears here, basically is Mark's way of saying, you know that messenger I just mentioned, guess who it is? It's John. John is the messenger that these prophetic words have been talking about. Now, Mark, because this is just the way Mark is, doesn't provide us with a lot of details. We know elsewhere from reading other Gospels that John was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a relative of Mary, who's the mother of Jesus, so there's a kind of a family connection there. He, too, had a miraculous birth, if you read about that in Luke 1, like Jesus. But all Mark is uh, sort of concerned with is, is that John is the messenger he is the one who is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. He is the one who's come to prepare the way. He is the forerunner 
of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. So the fact that he's arrived means the Lord is not far behind him. The fact that he has come to prepare the way means that God is on the move. And the one thing we need to realize, between our Old and New Testaments, in our Bible, it's one page. You finish Malachi, you turn the page, you're into Matthew. That's how it worked. For them, it was 400 years. Okay, so there's a, there's a big space of time there. And the fact that now that someone has turned up, this messenger come, means that prophetic silence that God was not speaking. In fact, he started speaking again, and John is the one coming, means that something's happening. This is a beginning of something. The word of God is coming back to his people. And John is portrayed as an Elijah-type figure. We looked at Elijah this time last year. And the, the common belief at the time was that before the Lord came back, Elijah would return. And Mark puts John in that role. He is the Elijah-type figure because he's dressed like a crazy man. And apparently what he's dressed in would look silly then, even, if it, even though it looks silly now. It's not just now. They would have been like, what is this dude doing? Wearing his camel hair and he's eating the locusts. And it's like, you are, whoa. But he's, he's, he's the Isaiah-type figure. That's what he's, sorry, not Isaiah, Elijah-type figure. And he's out in the wilderness. Where did Elijah spend much time? In the wilderness. And Elijah was this figure who came and turned the people back to God. Remember, what happened on Mount Carmel? When he stood against the prophets of Baal and the fire fell and the people turned back to God. So this expectation, Elijah has returned. The Lord must be right behind him. And he has a message and he's calling people to repentance, to turn away from their old way of life, come back to the Lord, just like Elijah did, return to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And he's baptizing them in the River Jordan, again associated with Elijah, the River Jordan. And that's to symbolize the inward change of repentance. Baptism is what it does, so actually that shows what's happened. If you want to know more about baptism, come next week. How many? Ten? Eight? Eight. Eight on here. We're going to get them wet. So it's baptisms next week. And apparently pizza. But shh, that's not the reason we come. <laughs> and John has got this huge influence. It says all the area around them, they're coming to hear him because something God's doing is on the move and he's preaching to them. He's proclaiming them. But what's he talking about? He's not talking about himself. He's talking about someone else because he's the messenger and his job is to prepare the way for the Lord. And he's saying, one is coming after me who is greater than I am. It's not about me. Because you think about John. John has made it. He's got hundreds, thousands of people coming to him. He's got a ministry that is rocking, where they're baptizing people, they're repenting. Everyone's heard of John. And you're like, from a point of view of a preacher, that is like, whoa. Celebrity, his Instagram would have been blowing up. He would have been getting preaching gigs. You come and talk over here. You will fly to this conference. But John's got a message to say, it's not about me. It's not about me. In fact, the person who I'm talking about is so much bigger and greater than I am, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And that imagery kind of translates a little bit today. If you had to go around untying people's shoelaces and taking their shoes off, it would all be a bit, it's a bit grim. But back then it was even worse because it was dusty and they didn't have roads like we do and pavements and ways of cleaning themselves. It was just, they were horrible manky feet. And he says, I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. And the taking off the sandal was a job for the slave, the, not just the slave, the lowest of the slaves. 
It wasn't Jewish slaves weren't allowed to do it. It had to be done by Gentile slaves. It was just like, it was the lowest low. And John's saying, this guy is so great, so big, so important that I'm not even worthy to do the lowest menial job for him. He's too great. He is too big. And he makes a promise and says, I'm baptizing you with just water. You're repenting of your sin. But he's going to come and give you something so much better. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. Something that only God can do. So even in that, he's pointing about who this great person is. This person is God because he's going to bring you the Holy Spirit. And a little Bible study tip for you here, if you're using the journal and you've got your Bible there, what we're going to find in the next, I don't know, four or five verses, six verses, the Holy Spirit's going to come up again and again and again. And when you see repetition in Scripture, that should tip you off. Think, this might be important I should look into that, underline that. So we've got the Holy Spirit here, he mentions it, we're going to hear it in the next bit, and we're going to hear it in the next bit. And the Holy Spirit has been poured out, we see it fulfilled completely in Acts chapter 2 when it comes out on the, the church, but there's the beginning of something here, and John's saying, this one's going to come and he's going to bring the Spirit, he's going to bring the Holy Spirit, and it's been quiet for 400 years, and Jesus is one who's going to come back and bring that. So it's well worth looking into that and researching that. So we've got preparation For Jesus, we've got the Old Testament saying, God's going to do something. We've got John coming and saying, I'm the fulfillment of that Old Testament, and I'm proclaiming that the Lord is coming. And then we get to the second section there, where's preparation of Jesus. And we get to one of the biggest defining moments of Jesus' public ministry. The first one is his baptism. This is huge, because Mark just jumps straight into that. And he says, in those days, which links it all together, John's preaching... One's coming, and it says, in those days when all that was happening, when all that activity, that fervor was coming, Jesus appears on the, on the scene. So Jesus has been mentioned in chapter one, uh, verse one, he now appears into the narrative, into the story himself. And the baptism of Jesus cannot be underestimated how important it was, because if we flip forward to Acts chapter one, and we find out Jesus is projected Jesus, he's He's hung himself. He's dead. He's off the scene. The 12 apostles of Jesus, 12 disciples, are one short. And there's that odd story in Acts where it's like, we need to replace Judas because he's gone. We need to replace him. And they replace him with Matthias. But what their, their criteria for finding out or picking who would be the replacement for Jesus is who has been with us since the baptism of Jesus? Who's been with us since that point and walked with us this whole time, and Matthias is the one who has been and gets picked to replace Judas amongst the 12. And so this is a huge moment. So we have, in those days, Jesus comes and he's defined from Nazareth, which is his hometown. It's the only time it's actually mentioned in Mark, but that's where he grew up. Um, and interestingly, John, who suddenly appeared on the scene, celebrity preacher doing really quite well, thank you very much, suddenly goes to the background. He was, he was the main man for a, a verse or two, got his moment, and actually now the main event has arrived. Jesus has appeared, and he is baptized by John, and three things happen at his baptisms that you should note. We see the heavens are torn open, the Spirit descends, and a voice speaks from heaven, and all three of these, in Jewish thought, in expectation, were signs of the coming of the kingdom of God. So the fact that they all happen at this baptism is Mark's way of saying, guess what's going on? The kingdom of God has come 
And Jesus is the one who's going to bring it. So we see the heavens torn open, links back to Isaiah 64, where it says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that speaks of God sending his chosen one to us, um, the spirit coming out and all those things. And even the language of torn. I spoke um, last week, I talked about the son of God being mentioned in verse one. And it's mentioned right at the end in chapter 15. So it kind of bookends the gospel. So it's Jesus is the son of God. And what we have right at the end of the gospel is when the centurion, when Jesus dies, the centurion standing at the, the foot of the cross says, surely this man was the son of God. So it's Mark bookending his gospel saying who are we talking about Jesus the son of God what Mark also does is bookends his gospel with a tearing of heaven we've got the baptism of Jesus where the the heavens are torn open what happens at the end of Mark's gospel when Jesus dies in the temple there is a tearing of what the curtain is torn from top to bottom so even this is significant and Mark will come back to this at the end there is a tearing of heaven and heaven is breaking into earth through Jesus. And then we see from the tearing of heaven, the Spirit descends. The belief obviously was Messiah was going to be empowered by God's Spirit. We see it right here. We know Jesus is the Messiah, verse 1. We now see it here. The Spirit is descending on him, into him, and he is being filled with the Spirit. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I put my Spirit on him. And that's Isaiah looking forward prophetically for the one God will send, the servant. And we know Jesus is it. But what Mark's also doing in that verse is pointing out how the servant will serve. Because if you read Isaiah and you read about the servant, he's not referred to as a servant. He's referred to as the suffering servant. Because we know that's what the servant is going to come and do. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And so Mark is even foreshadowing the future there in what he's pointing to. So the spirit spends on Jesus. He is going to be the servant. He's going to be the suffering servant. And then we get the voice from heaven. And it's confirmation. What's Mark said in verse 1? Jesus is the Son of God. And then we get the voice from heaven saying, yes, he's the Son of God. This is who Jesus is, the voice of God the Father speaking to the voice of God the Son, which is a reference back to Psalm chapter 2, where it um, it says, um, I will decree this. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, which is the installation of the king. So Jesus is not just a suffering servant, but he is the long-awaited king right there and he's not just a son it says how does it describe it he is the beloved son so that talks about the intimacy of the relationship between God the father and God the son perfectly in tune in what they're doing there so what we have in this image of Jesus baptism we have a declaration we see the father's love for God the son we see God the son's faithful obedience we see his inauguration of his kingship there that's a long awaited one, but we also know it will be marked by suffering service. And we see God the Trinity in action, God the Father speaking, God the Holy Spirit descending, and God the Son receiving. And so we have that beautiful moment there as Jesus is prepared for what to come at his baptism. But then immediately after baptism, we have the battle. Because it says the Spirit, there's the Spirit again, immediately, that's another Markism, Immediately, so we've got baptism, and straight after the baptism, which must have been such an event, like we're going to start. Here we go, filled with the Spirit, the affirmation of God the Father from heaven. Bring it on! And immediately, it says they were drove in, driven into the wilderness, and we have the story of the temptation. And again, Mark, very brief in how he talks about it. So Jesus being pr- 
prepare for ministry is immediately thrust into combat with God's enemy. They're referred to here as Satan, the enemy, the adversary, and he is sent out into the wilderness. And there are allusions here to Leviticus chapter 16, which we looked at at the beginning of this year. Uh, on chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. And one of the things that happened on the Day of Atonement was the high priest would get a goat. He would confess the sins of the people over the goat and lay his hands on him. And then the goat would then be what? Sent out into the wilderness. And it was referred to as the scapegoat. And it was just sent off. And so Jesus has been sent off into the wilderness. And the wilderness was a place of combat uh, with the enemy. And this wasn't just unfortunate circumstances. This was a divinely orchestrated um, mission that Jesus was on. He came to defeat the works of the enemy, and so we had to go and battle the enemy. The Satan is an adversary, a supernatural enemy of God, and Jesus is in the wilderness, a proving ground, a testing ground. And he's in there for 40 days, it says, and that's significant because it refers to Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, where God tested them for their disobedience. And there was a constant back and forth. And actually through that, we find Israel time and time again failing at being God's chosen people. They got it wrong again and again. We've looked at it briefly at times in this church, but that's the story. Jesus now goes in as the new Israel. He goes into the wilderness. He is tested by the enemy. If you read the other gospel accounts, there's a bit more detail. But the enemy comes to test him. And Jesus, time and time again, repels the enemy with the word of God and emerges victorious. And so we know Jesus has gone into battle. We know he gets victory from that battle. And we find this unusual uh, note in there for the wild animals. And I kind of like, what's, what's that doing there? Why suddenly wild beasts? Well, it kind of talks partly about kind of what the wilderness is like. It's an unsafe place. There are enemies there. It's not a great place, not a safe place, but it's also, scholars tell me, there's an allusion in there to the original readers. And we learned last week the original readers that Mark was writing to were in Rome in a certain period of time, about AD 60. Who was the emperor at that point? A guy called Nero. Not a nice chap. What did he like to do to Christians? Well, among other things... He liked to throw them into the arena with wild beasts. And they would be torn to shreds. And so they believe that even just Mark putting this in here is a, is a word of comfort to Christians who are facing comfort. That Jesus went through some of this stuff, but he will be with you when you go through it. And then it finally ends with this, he was attended by angels, which we can see Elijah before him was done. But Jesus was ministered to, he was strengthened Um, by angels and he arose from the battle victorious and he achieved kind of his purposes as the new king there so what we've got in that section um, a few bits and pieces uh, to pull together Jesus is the long-awaited king he is someone who's been prepared for hundreds and hundreds of years this has always been God's plan And Mark picks out a couple of prophetic words there, but there are so many more that point to his coming. He is the best news ever. John comes as the one to proclaim. He points squarely to him, say, it's all about this man. He is going to bring the Holy Spirit. 
And then we see the Holy Spirit fall on him and then the Holy Spirit empowering him for ministry to fight the battles he has to fight to destroy the works of the enemy. And we see Jesus, unlike Israel, who failed so often in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded and emerged victorious in that, resisting the temptation, resisting the attacks of the enemy. So what does it mean for us? Let's just going to give you three things to finish and then we're going to pull it together with some time of worship. First thing, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Mark showed us at the beginning of this gospel. It's all about Jesus, verse 1, and now he's showing it by working it out with him. We've got the Old Testament prophecies. We've got John's preaching. We've got the affirmation of the Father, the coming of the Spirit, Jesus' victory in the wilderness. This is something that's going to be all about him. And the reality is actually as we pull that into our life, everything's still all about him. How we live our lives, how we act, everything needs to orbit around that sun in our life, the sun. He is the one we are to look to. And we talked over the last couple of weeks about framing us as a church as we move into the next 10 years, what that's going to look like, where we're heading, what it's about. We know we need to grow up. But this question we've got, does it help us grow a relationship with Jesus? And Mark, again, as we study this, he's hammering us and saying, it's all about him. It's got to come back to him. We've got to put ourselves in the position of John, of actually saying, we're the ones who've got to be talking about him. Is our message all about him? Is the life we're leading all about him? If people examined our life, would they hear that similar message? It's not about me. Because actually I'm not worthy even to untie his sandal. It's actually all about him. He's the one who can save. He's the one who can forgive. He's the one who can come and into your life. He's the one you should be worshipping. It's all about him. Have you had an opportunity to ask that question for yourself? Maybe it's something time you need to take some time and have a think about. Look at your life. Ask the Holy Spirit to come speak to you and say, what areas of my life do I need to adjust to unite to bring in line with the fact that it's all about him. Number two, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who was both God, fully God, was also fully man. He was both those things. Yet, he was someone full of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus was someone full of the Holy Spirit... How much should we be men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit? We follow his model, follow his example. We need to be men and women who are full of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just an afterthought. It was central in the beginning, the inauguration of his ministry to the public. was the fact that the Spirit fell on him. And John, the one thing that Mark logs that John wants to talk about is that Jesus is the one who brings the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit to us. Paul later tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that we are to be men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit and are keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do in a moment, when we finish and we wrap up, we're going to pray for us to men and women filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are prepared ourselves and empowered for ministry and service with him. If we're going to make it all about him, and if we're going to live a life all about him, and if we're going to follow him, we all need the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us, to guard us, to guide us, to lead us, 
to empower us for those things. And the third and final thing is that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. We live a life where we battle against sin, the world, and the devil. Now, we know Jesus won the victory. We see it kind of in in microcosm in his uh, time in the wilderness. We see it more fully in the cross and the resurrection. And one day we will see in completeness when he comes again. So we know that's true. However, life is still a battle now. We do not see the kingdom of God fully come. We are not fully free from the dangers and the trials and the temptations of this world. Ephesians chapter 6 talks about us wearing an armor like a soldier to fight battles. And we're told elsewhere that the battles aren't against people, aren't against flesh and blood. We don't use swords and bombs and guns and drones. We have to fight against spiritual battles, against the way of thinking, against lies, things like that. But we still need to fight. We need to be men and women who are warriors and we are to keep fighting what we're doing. And as followers of Jesus, it's important. One of the best things the enemy can do is to lull you into a position where I don't need to fight. (laughs) There's nothing really going on. Life's easy and I can just motor along. From his point of view, I've won. I won't bother you. I'll move on to the next person. But we are called to be men and women to fight. We have to fight temptation. We're to fight in our suffering. We're to fight against the distractions of the world. We're to fight for our marriages, our parenting. When we're spiritually dry, just remain godly and holy in our workplaces and wherever we walk. Because we're in a battle. But thankfully, we have God the Holy Spirit with us to help us, to empower us for ministry. So I want to pray for us. So this is how we're going to do it. Do you want to stand? Do you want the band come up? I'll explain the way we're going to do this so we can get some time coming before Jesus. What we're going to do, first thing, is we're going to sing a couple of songs. Christian and the the guys are going to lead us, and we're going to put our eyes on Jesus, and we're going to look to him, and we're going to focus him, and we're going to put the distractions around us down. And then what I'm going to do is I'll pop up after that, and I'll give a general call for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going to pray that God will fill you with his Spirit. And I'm going to ask you to come forward and do that. But I don't want you to come forward unless there's three things. You, you can do three things. The first one is I want you to be convinced by Scripture that this is for you. That the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you. There's numerous Scriptures about it. Acts 2... Many others, Ephesians 5, we read there. I want you to desire it and say, this is, I want this. I actually want it. And then I want you to come with faith and say, this is for me. I believe God's got something for me. And then we're going to pray. Because if you haven't got those, praying for you almost is irrelevant. You need to do that that groundwork. So that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to pray for us to be filled. But if you want then to come and have a touch of God, it might be the first time. We want you to come with faith, convince us for you, and then we want to lay hands on you and see you filled with the Spirit. Does that sound good? Yeah. Amen. Let's be filled with the Spirit. All right, so um, over to you. I'll get out of the way. I'm in the way. Why? Excuse me.